0: If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open them up to the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, Mark chapter 8, gospel according to Mark, it's where we've been for the last few weeks as we've been looking at the life and ministry and impact of this man, Jesus. We're going to continue that this morning, but before we jump into it and you're turning there, let's pray together uh, and ask for God's uh, wisdom, God's power uh, to open up his word to us this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Um, I thank you so much for the way that your word uncovers uh, my sins. It reveals uh, our struggles. Um, Your word testifies to us that you are true, that your word is true, and you are who you say you are. And because of that, we can trust your word to read our hearts like nothing else, so this morning we would ask that you would enable us to hear your word with believing ears and, and humble hearts and that we would sit under its exposure of our hearts and we would see what it is we truly treasure. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit we would see your truth as it's meant to deal with us specifically, to correct us and to encourage us and ultimately to equip us to live a life that glorifies you. And we. Ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, for his sake and his glory. Amen. Amen. So far, in our look, our brief look at the gospel according to Mark, we've kind of had a theme that's been unraveling, and that theme relates to the unexpected nature of this man, Jesus, and his ministry. And we've seen week after week that Jesus does not fit with conventional expectations. Jesus does not operate according to the the normal religious and cultural assumptions of his day. Nothing about him conformed to the idea that his peers had in their mind about who the Messiah would be. From the very beginning of his life, from his upbringing in Nazareth, we've already heard people say, what good can come from Nazareth? He's a Nazarite. And from the moment he began to operate and his ministry began to expand, we saw Jesus in constant conflict with the religious order of his day. He just didn't operate according to the assumptions that the Pharisees and the scribes had for him. He didn't conform to their expectations. And from the minute he began teaching about the kingdom of God, we've seen that he's been trying to explain the kingdom of God in a way that is radically opposite the way the people were expecting it to operate. As he began to teach about the kingdom of God, he began to teach that the kingdom of God was not going to come and it was not going to advance in the way that people had expected. It wasn't going to advance and grow the way that the Roman Empire grows. It wasn't gonna come by force and coercion. It was gonna come by grace. And it was gonna come and do its work and do its transformation from the inside out. And as he continued to teach and explain the unexpected nature of this kingdom of God, it naturally implied that he as king He, as the king, was not going to rule and was not going to operate in the way that the people were anticipating or expecting. And so as we come to Mark chapter 8 and Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples and those who are following him, we shouldn't expect anything that he says now to conform to their expectations and assumptions. We shouldn't expect that at this point everything is going to change. And so let's pick up the story and the life and the ministry and the impact of of Jesus in Mark chapter 8. And here's what I want to do. I want to frame the bulk of our time together uh, in one particular way. And in doing that, I'm trying to set us up for the weeks ahead and what we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. But also kind of frame what we'll be talking about primarily this morning. So in Mark chapter 8, the first thing we want to see is just a hint and a kind of a taste of the unexpected nature of Jesus' mission the purpose for which he came was completely contrary to the purpose that the people were expecting. Look at this. In three times in the gospel according to Mark, Jesus clearly tells his disciples in detail that he is going to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed but that three days from then he will rise from the dead. It's so important to understand what we're going to be talking about for the majority of our time this morning. It's so important that you catch this, and you catch the tension that's rising for the followers of Christ as he begins to teach this. I want you to hear all three times that Jesus says this to his followers. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says this, Jesus began to teach them, teach his followers, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he'll rise again. If you flip over a chapter to Mark chapter 9, Jesus says it this way there. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Turn one more chapter over to Mark chapter 10. You see a third time where Jesus very clearly and emphatically is trying to communicate this to his followers. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. So here's where we're going, and here's why we're going there. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, talking about myself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death And deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. And they will flog him. And they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Very clearly and very emphatically, Jesus is trying to communicate to those who would follow him that he is going to die. And not only is he going to die, but his death is intentional, he means for it to happen. He's not running away from it. Instead, he's walking straight into it. And when he gets there and when he is killed, it is going to be a murder. It is intentional, but it is not a suicide. It is a murder. And in all three of these instances, when Jesus is trying to communicate this, he's very clear about who is actually going to do the work. He's very clear about who his murderers are. But he's also very clear that in three days, in precisely three days, He's not vague about it. He's not approximating. He says in precisely three days he will rise from the dead. And he's trying to communicate, and Mark is trying to pick up on this and communicate this to us, that his death is appointed. Jesus understands this. His death is appointed, but so is his resurrection. And they're going to happen exactly on the schedule that Jesus has for them. But here's the thing. Here's what Jesus doesn't say in those three things. He doesn't say why. He says he's going to go to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he's going to die. He's going to be murdered. And he says he knows this and he intends for this to happen. And in three days after he's murdered, he's going to rise from the dead. But he doesn't say why he's going to do that, why it's so essential for this to happen. Now, in the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different ways Jesus does say why. He gets very clear with his disciples, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, why they're having to do this and why he's going to have to do this. That's for the next three weeks. But the reason I introduce it this morning is because I want you to begin to sense the tension that's building for those who would be followers of Jesus, for those who have been gathering around him, those who have been pressing in on him. We've heard story after story of how the crowds would gather as Jesus would teach and demonstrate his authority as the king. Jesus is trying to clarify for them just what it means for them to actually be his follower. And as he's teaching what it means for him to be king and what it means for him to go to Jerusalem, just as he's appointed, attention is beginning to build for those who would actually follow him. And This is why I chose to kind of start this way. Jesus is trying to communicate here, and Mark is picking up on this, that being his disciple, being a follower of Jesus, it means a whole lot more than just learning about him than just learning about who he is as the Messiah. It means a whole lot more than just learning about what it means for the kingdom of God to be at hand. Being a follower of Jesus or being a disciple of Jesus means following him wherever he goes. It means following him wherever he goes. Following Jesus means going with him to Jerusalem. Going with him to the place where he'll be killed. Going with him there, and when you're there, you're gonna be identified with him. The very ones who seek to take him and to kill him. He's telling you all about it. When you get there, if you follow him, you're gonna be identified with him. This is what it means to actually be his follower. And so this morning, we're gonna pick up the story here in Mark chapter eight, and here's what we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at the unexpected nature and the unexpected cost of what it means to actually be a follower of Christ. He's very clear. But the cost is not what people were assuming. And so this morning, we're going to look at the unexpected cost of following Jesus. The cost was not going to fit the normal mold. And this is so important for us this morning. It is so easy for you and I to live with expectations about what it means to follow Jesus that don't match the expectations that Jesus lays out himself. It is no struggle to find someone today, to find a book today, to find a show today, to find a preacher today who will be more than willing to speak on Jesus' behalf about what it actually means for you to follow him. But the majority of the time, or very often, I should say, the expectations that many people communicate don't match up to the expectations that Jesus says. So this morning, we're going to look in Mark chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to let Jesus speak for himself. We're going to let Jesus clarify what it actually means to follow him. What is the unexpected cost of following Jesus? And as we listen to him explain it, he's talking to regular people, just like you and I. He's talking to people just like you, just like me. And he's talking about what it means to actually follow him. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 8. We've got Mark open, Mark chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 34. The first thing that Jesus is going to say is that if you are going to follow him, if you are going to follow Jesus, that means you are going to have to die to yourself. And not just in a vague way. He's going to get really specific. Following Jesus means living a daily life of dying to your sense of self-gratification and your sense of self-preservation. And we get that right here in Mark 8, verse 34. Listen to Jesus. When he called, and Jesus called to him the crowd, with his disciples. So everybody who's following him at this point, he calls near to him. And here's what he says. If anyone will come after me, if you're gonna follow me, if you're gonna be my follower, here it is. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. If you're going to follow Jesus, you, you wanna follow Jesus, it's gonna mean you're gonna have to deny yourself. It means you're going to have to bear your own cross. That's why I say following Jesus means a daily life of dying to your self-gratification, dying to your sense of self-preservation, because those things are the opposites of self-denial and cross-bearing. The opposite of self-denial is what? Self-gratification. The opposite of bearing your cross is trying to preserve yourself and your life. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means you're going to have to die to a life that is driven by self-gratification. And you're going to have to die daily to a life that's driven by self-preservation. Inside that statement that Jesus is making is a question. And here's the question. And this is the question that's going to frame every interaction we're going to see Jesus have with those who would be his followers this morning. And here it is. Do you trust and do you treasure Jesus enough to follow him? even when it costs you. The the key word in that statement is treasure. I mean, just think about that word and think about the things that you prize, the things that you treasure, the things that you esteem highly in your life, the things that you protect fiercely, the things that you really treasure. Jesus is asking this question. He's gonna be asking it over and over in a series of interactions he's gonna have with people who would follow him. Do you trust me Do you treasure me? Do you treasure me enough? Do you treasure me even when it costs you? Do you treasure me even even when there's a price to pay? Look at this. Do you treasure Jesus enough to lay down a life driven by self-gratification? A life that is led by the pursuit of your own desires and your own will? I mean, this is so subtle but so powerful for each of us. I I was thinking about this in my own life, and the thing that I kept thinking about and kept being confronted by was just how often in a pursuit of my own pleasure, my own will, my own purposes, I can manipulate those closest to me, those who I love the most, but I can manipulate them in a way to get my ends and my wants met. I can come home in a particular way Carry myself in a particular way, speak in a particular tone, say particular things to my wife and to my kids to get them to operate in a way that fulfills the desires that I have for myself when I get home. Driven by my own sense of of self-gratification. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to die daily to a life that is led by the drive for your own sense of self-gratification. And not only that, you're going to have to exchange it for a life that is driven by his will, his desires, his purposes, and his plans in every situation. And not only do you have to die to that life driven by your own sense of self-gratification, you're going to have to die to a life driven by your own desire for self-preservation. If you don't think this is a strong one for you, you haven't really thought about it. I mean, just give yourself a moment to think about the amount of mental and emotional energy we spend trying to preserve ourselves. And not just physically, that's the easy one. We all know that one day we're going to die, but we spend a great deal of time and energy and money trying to preserve ourselves. But think about this think of the energy and the intention that we spend trying to preserve our name, trying to preserve our, our reputation trying to preserve the image that we want to project to other people, trying to preserve their thoughts of of us. Jesus is saying, you need to die to this daily sense of a life that's driven by your own self-preservation, because you know what? One day it might be gone. One day, if you follow me and we get to Jerusalem, you're going to be identified with me. And all that that you've built up, All the name, all the reputation, all the respect. Am I enough when that comes crashing down? If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to die daily to a life that is driven by trying to satisfy your own desires and a life driven by trying to preserve yourself. Am I enough when everything around you falls apart? When we get to Jerusalem, and they take me, and they kill me, and they look at you and they say, hey, he was with him, am I enough? How is that going to affect you? If you want to follow me, you're going to have to die to those things. Following Jesus is a lifetime of dying to yourself. That's the first thing he wants us to see, dying to your life that is focused on your own self-gratification and your own self-preservation Is having him enough? What is it that your heart really treasures? Jesus is going to hammer this home a little bit more. And he's going to take this idea of of dying to a life driven by self-gratification and self-preservation from the 50,000 foot view down to the street level. And he's going to get real particular. Turn over to Luke chapter 9. The Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 9. Let's see Jesus dial this in just a a little bit more. Luke chapter 9. We'll start in verse 51. Let me get there. Here we go. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up. So when the day was getting close for Jesus to get to Jerusalem to to be delivered over to die. This is what Luke says. He says he set his face. The resolution set his face to go to Jerusalem. So again, Luke even tells us about Jesus' resolve to get to Jerusalem. We read in Mark what that meant, what was going to happen when he got there, that he was going to die. And if you were going to follow him, you were going to have to follow him there. You were going to have to go with him there. You were going to have to be identified with him there. And so now Luke is going to narrate a series of encounters that Jesus has with those who would be his followers And in each of these encounters, Jesus is going to dig a little bit deeper into what it means to die to self-gratification and die to self-preservation and and what it really is going to cost if you're going to be one of his followers. Look at this now at verse 57, Luke chapter 9. Let's just listen to these encounters and then we'll we'll go pick them apart. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, they're remember, making their way to Jerusalem, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Great enthusiasm, right? Great commitment. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Curious response. Verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. So now Jesus takes the initiative, right? This isn't someone coming to Jesus saying, I've heard about you, I've seen you, I've even heard you teach, I've even seen some of the miracles, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. No, this is someone that Jesus goes up to and he says, I want you to follow me. Listen to the response. The man that he said that to said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems reasonable, right? And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay? Verse 61, yet another person said, I will follow you, Lord. It's great, right? Commitment. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Sounds reasonable. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These are odd responses from someone that you would expect to be building a large contingent to follow him to the place where he's going. It, I mean, on the surface, it would be beneficial for Jesus to have a large following when he got to Jerusalem and people were gonna try to seize him and take him and kill him. It'd be to his benefit to have a huge number of people that might stand in the way, but that's not what he's after. That's not what Jesus is trying to accomplish. That's not the expectation that Jesus is trying to meet. Jesus is looking at these people and in a sense looking at us and saying, you, you wanna be my disciple." You really, you want to follow me. You love me. You treasure me so much. Well, here's what it's going to cost. Scholars in in studying these interactions of Jesus all seem to agree that Jesus was doing two things here. He was teaching those who would be followers and he was testing those who were trying to follow him. He was teaching them what it meant to be his follower. He was also testing them. Testing whether or not they really wanted to follow him. My heroes, John Piper, he calls these particular encounters of Jesus a treasure test. A treasure test. Here's what he said. He says that Jesus in this text is testing these people and he's testing you to see if he's enough. To see if he's really your treasure Your joy, your security, your hope, your friend in times of loneliness, your home, your father and mother, your power to look straight ahead, to test you in all of these ways, Jesus tells you what it's going to cost to follow him. Jesus is testing how much they and how much you treasure the you in I will follow you. And he's testing it by explaining what the follow will actually cost. And as we read these, I want to be very careful. And I want you to see in this that Jesus is not establishing some sort of new legalistic template or legalistic set of rules about what it means to actually be his follower. He isn't saying that if you're really gonna follow me and be an authentic disciple of mine, that then you'll never have a home to live in, never have a place to lay your head, not even have a pillow, that you're never gonna be able to go to the funeral of a family member. Jesus isn't setting up some kind of new legalistic standard. I know that because if we go and read the rest of Jesus' encounters with other people, we see how he operates like this. If you remember that famous story about Jesus with the rich young ruler, The young boy who came to him and said, you know what, I want to follow you, Jesus, sounded like some of these guys. And Jesus looked at him and he said, okay, great, here's what you need to do. You need to give away everything you've got. All of it, let it go. Then Jesus met another man named Zacchaeus. We'll read about his story in the next couple of weeks. He met a man named Zacchaeus who also had a considerable wealth, considerable amount of riches. And when he encountered Jesus... When the power of Jesus encountered the heart of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus looked at Jesus and said, You know what? 50% of all my goods, all of my wealth, I'm giving to the poor. And you know what? All the people, all of my brothers and sisters that I've extorted for all these years as a tax collector, I'm going to repay them four times what I took from them. And what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? He said, Zacchaeus, today, salvation has entered your house. Rich run ruler, get rid of everything. Zacchaeus said, I'm giving away 50%, and Jesus said, salvation has come, because Jesus is not trying to set up some kind of standard by which they have to respond, Jesus is after their heart. Jesus is going after their heart and their treasure and their motivation, he's not after trying to set up a new set of rules, he said, if you're really his follower, you won't have anything, you won't sleep anywhere, you won't go see anybody before you go somewhere, he's not trying to set up some new legalistic standard by which we judge people, Jesus is going after the heart, and he's exposing your real treasures. He's exposing what really has a hold on your heart. What is it you desire most? This is what we saw in the parables last week, the parable of the sower and the seed. The issue wasn't with the sower, that was Jesus. The issue wasn't with the seed, that was the message of the gospel. The issue was your heart. What's going on in your heart? And this is what Jesus is exposing to these would-be followers, but exposing to you and I. And so here's what we're going to do in the next few minutes. And I I, I want to try to say this as clearly as I can and to some degree um, as kindly as I can. As we go through these, I want you to let Jesus expose to you what really has a grip on your heart. I I want you to let him expose to you what it is you really treasure. And here's what I mean by that. And and this is why I want to try to say it as kindly as I can. Every single week, someone will come up to me and say, I really appreciate what you said. I was so glad that so-and-so was sitting there to hear it. I I really wish so-and-so could have been here to hear what you said because that would have been perfect for them, okay? Let's just celebrate the fact that everyone's here to hear what's being said. It's being recorded so so so-and-so can hear it at a later time. Now, for the rest of the time that we're here, You need to listen for yourself. Do not listen for anyone else around you. Don't listen for your neighbor. Don't listen for your kids. Listen for yourself. Let Jesus expose to you by his word what it is that you really treasure. Let him show you if there are weeds that have grown up that threaten to choke out the spiritual life of God at work in your heart. And as we walk through these, it's so important to remember that the issue is not, and we're going to go over this over and over, the issue is not what it is you have to give up to follow Jesus. The issue is how important is Jesus to you? That's what he's getting after. He's getting after your heart. It's not about the details, the things that it might cost you. It's about whether or not he's enough. Whether or not Jesus himself is enough for you. That's what he's trying to expose. So let him do it. Let let him do it for you this morning, okay? First thing we see Jesus trying to expose, the first thing we see him kind of poking at and asking is simply this. Is he more precious to you? Is Jesus more precious to you than your home? And not just your home in and of itself, not just the physical structure, that's part of it. Is he more precious to you than the comfort and the security and the peace that all of those things represent to you? Is he more precious to you than that? He looked at that first would-be follower, and he said, listen, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere. You still want to follow me. What if it costs you that home, that perfect place that you've been constructing, perfectly climate controlled, it's as hot as you want when you want, as cool as you want when you want. No ants running around, no roaches running around, no mice running around, it's not a tent, it's a house because, face it, we're very blessed where we live. Got a garage, you pull your nice car into it, you can get it ready and climate controlled from the garage that you walk right out into and never have to get out on the elements it's got a great security system. You feel pretty safe and secure. What if following Jesus cost you that? Is he enough? Is he, is he worth it? If it all went away, if it was all gone, was he worth it? Is he worth following? And again, it's not about what the particular things are that it might cost you. It's whether or not he's enough and whether or not your heart is bent on pursuing that life of self-gratification and self-preservation and you're pursuing that comfort potentially at the expense of a sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. This is what he's trying to expose. It's not particularly the things themselves, it's the state of your heart. What are you pursuing? Him and his kingdom or your own comfort, your own gratification, your own preservation. What's got your heart? He says, follow me. But am I enough if all of those things go away? If following me means you have to leave that to go where I'm going, to go where I'm taking you. Am I more precious to you, more satisfying to you, And the satisfaction you derive from these things. Right now, they feel really hard, really tough to let go of. But remember, in the parable last week, they're just weeds. Chris was reminding me of this between the service. These these things are just weeds that threaten to choke out your soul. Right now, they seem so vital and so important. They're just weeds. Is is he more precious to you than that? But he's not done, he's going to keep poking. That second would-be disciple. And this one. This one gets real personal, at least for me. It gets real close to home. Is Jesus more precious to you than even your own family? And this one. This one hurts. This one's hard for me. This one's a real a battle for me. I know my propensity and my capacity uh, to make my family an idol to put my family in a place that they don't need to be. But he's getting real personal. I mean, just think, and I, I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, just think, if you're, if you're parents out there, uh, how often and how easy it is to direct our kids in a particular way that if we're really honest, and we rarely will ever be honest about this, but if we're really honest about it, that direction and that path isn't so much primarily for their good, but for the sense of gratification that we'll get out of it, how we'll be able to kind of live through it, how it will curry for us or or build for us a particular reputation and, and image as our kids go through it, how easy it is, just how easy it is to even take those that we love and we value and we would lay our life down for like our kids and in some sense and I don't mean this like crassly but make them pawns in our own pursuit of self-gratification self-preservation and then they become not very cooperative pawns and when they don't cooperate with our plan and our pursuits we get frustrated because what we really want is being blocked. The end we really want wasn't necessarily for them but it's from what we got from it. So when they don't go along with a plan, problems arise. Jesus is asking here, is he more precious to you than even your own family? But you really need to hear the thrust of what he's saying because what he said here and how he responded to this would-be follower would scandalize every single person that would hear what he would say. Listen, what did he say? He said, this man said, let me go back and bury my father, right? You gotta understand that in Jesus' day, the process of, of burying someone could take up to a year. It wasn't a short process. So when someone would die and their body would be pre- prepared and it would be wrapped, it would be placed in a vacant tomb. After the funeral and the processions had happened, it would be placed in a vacant tomb. And it was placed there to do one thing, and that was decompose. And it would decompose down to the point where there was nothing but bone left. And when there was nothing but bone left, it was the responsibility of the oldest son to go and to take the bones and put them in what was called an ossuary or a bone box. They would put the bones in the bone box and those bone boxes of the, of the relatives who had died would be placed in the family tomb. So a tomb could hold up to generations of a family because it would hold the boxes that had the bones in them. That process could take up to a year. So when this guy responded to Jesus saying, "I want to follow you, just let me go, let me go bury my dad." You got to understand that what he wanted to do was an expectation that the people of Israel had in honoring their father and their mother. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's one of the 10, isn't it? Ten commandments, honoring your father and your mother. This guy was saying, let me do the very thing that I'm supposed to do as the oldest son and honor my father by going and and fulfilling this process and burying him, and Jesus looks at him. (laughs) He looks at him. Verse 60, he says, let the dead go bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God everywhere. That, That would have absolutely scandalized everybody that heard this. This guy was talking about possibly delaying following Christ for about a year. and Jesus said, let the dead, let them go bury their own dead. Who's more important to you? Me or, or your dad? It's an issue of priority. Who, who's more important to you? Me or, or, your, or your dad? And here's the thing. There, there are times in following Christ When what it means to follow him means giving more of ourselves over to our family. Husbands, there are times in following Christ when following him to love your wife the way that he has loved the church, to sacrifice and lay down your life for your wife the way that he has sacrificed for his church, means giving more of yourself to your family than you do now. That's what it means. But there are other times that come in following Christ When not listening to our families, when they are calling us to compromise our commitment to following Christ, is what's in order. It's an issue of preciousness, it's an issue of priority. Who's most important? We don't necessarily have these kinds of year long processes now in the time in which we live, but let me show you one really brief example of where this is playing out right now in in the West, in, in places like America. Do you know where the largest potential missions force is in America? Like, who comprises the largest potential number of missionaries from America? Empty nesters. Baby boomers. Sons and daughters out of the house, retiring from long-standing careers. Now have got the last half of their life before them. They stand to be the largest missions force that we have in the West. Do you know why we're not seeing very many empty nesters go overseas to places with the gospel? Because of their sons and daughters, like me, who want grandma and grandpa around our kids, who want grandma and grandpa to spend their time and their free time and their opportunities around my kids. Is that bad? No. But many times, mom, grandma, and grandpa have desires to go to places where people don't have families, to go to places where people haven't had the kind of opportunities that I've had because of people like my mom and dad, and they want to go and share the gospel there, and it's sons and daughters like me who say, no, we're we're what's most important. It's an issue. It's a real issue. And Jesus is saying, who's most important? Who's most precious? It's an issue that we have to ask of priority. Who's most precious? And then there's this third guy. I kind of have him as a catch-all. This is kind of the catch-all encounter that Jesus has. And and the issue that he's dealing with with this third would-be disciple is really what it comes down to, is Jesus worth it or not? Is is following Jesus really worth it? Is he worthy of, of what all it might cost us? Watch this, another disciple said, look at this down here in verse 61, I will follow you, I'll follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. But Jesus says no, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now here's what I want you to catch, when Jesus said this, those who would have heard him, in that time and been familiar with their Old Testament. And and those who would have read this in Luke's account and been familiar with their Old Testament. And those of us who have been here as we've walked through the Old Testament might be remembering something as we hear Jesus' response here. And that's what he intended. There was a story back in the Old Testament about a guy named Elijah and his protege named Elisha. When Elijah, the greatest prophet in all of Israel, was coming to an end of his ministry, he came up to a man named Elisha, who he was going to give his anointing to, who was going to follow Elijah in the prophetic role that God had for Israel. When Elijah saw Elisha, if you remember the story, what was Elisha doing? Scholars. He was plowing his field. And not plowing his field like a regular guy who might have one ox or two ox under a yoke. Elisha had like ten. I don't know what that was like ox power. I mean, ten And one guy trying to navigate that whole thing. But when Elijah found him, he was plowing his field. This is what Jesus is getting at. And when Elijah looks at Elisha and he calls him to follow him, what does Elisha say? Do you remember? He says, can I go tell my mom and dad goodbye? I will, but can I go say goodbye to my family? Elijah, sure. That's a fair request. So he lets him. And Elijah goes to say goodbye to his mom and dad. And before he goes to follow Elijah, he takes all the oxen that he had used to plow his fields and all the yokes that he had used to harness them and all that, and he boils them all, making a clean break with everything that had been before. And now he's going to go follow Elijah and the purposes that God had for him. Jesus has this encounter with this would-be disciple who says, I will follow you. Just let me go say goodbye to my mom and dad. Everybody right there is expecting Jesus to go, sure. It's exactly what the greatest prophet in all of Israel did. He let Elisha go say goodbye. And Jesus said, no, no. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, you can't plow a straight row going forward when your head's looking back here. And I know the majority of us have never tried to plow a row in a garden with an ox before. So just imagine this. You're sitting in your car. You're staring in the rearview mirror. You're looking at everything behind you, and you put it in drive, not reverse. How straight do you think you're going to go? You're not going to make it very far, staying very straight. Here's what Jesus is getting after. You, you, You can't serve me. You can't follow me. You can't make me look great if you're always second-guessing the value of actually following me. You, you, You can't follow me. You can't make me look great if you're always wondering whether or not it was worth it. If your heart is always wondering whether I'm worth it, especially, especially when we get to Jerusalem, You can't follow me. You can't adequately display my glory and my worth if you're always wondering whether or not I'm worth it, or whether or not the decisions you've made were worth it. Just like the divided heart that we saw last week, it doesn't adequately display the work worth of Christ. Jesus, in the way that he's responding, in the way that the ears of the people there would have heard it, they would have heard Jesus saying, you can't, you can't adequately display my value with a divided heart, but here's the thing, I'm greater than even Elijah. I'm greater than even Elijah. I'm worth it. I am worth it. So it gets us back to Mark chapter 8 if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, die to self-gratification, let him take up his cross, die to daily life of self-preservation, and let him follow me. And if you go back to Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to bring this thing to a head by clarifying as clearly as we'll ever find it what the cost is of pursuing self-gratification, self-gratification and self-preservation. Let's let Jesus just bring this to a close on your heart. Look at this, verse 35 in Mark chapter eight. Jesus is gonna detail the cost of pursuing a life of self-preservation. For whoever would save his life, whoever spends their life pursuing the efforts of saving their own life, you'll actually lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake dies to that pursuit of self-preservation, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will actually save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? See, here's the thing, if you gain the whole world If you pursue this self-gratification and this self-preservation and you gain the whole world and you treasure it and value it more than you do Jesus, here's what he's saying. In the end, it won't be able to save you. I mean, ultimately, what real profit is it? What real gain is it if in the end it can't actually save you? There's a cost to this thing. What profit is it really gonna be for you? If when it really matters, it can't save you. Verse 38, he's going to detail out as clear as I've ever heard him the cost of pursuing this self-glorification. Look at this, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, just listen to him, of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? So here's what Jesus is saying right here. If you're embarrassed by me, that's what ashamed is, right? If you're embarrassed by me and the price that I've paid for you, if you're embarrassed by me and my words... And my message, and you're embarrassed by my mission and what's going to happen to me when we get to Jerusalem, if you're ashamed of me and embarrassed of me, not in particular moments, not in momentary lapses of, of courage, not when we're trying to communicate to someone uh, the essence and the nature of the gospel and we're a little afraid, he's talking about a settled disposition of heart that is ashamed of Jesus, that sees him as foolish. That's ashamed of what he said, ashamed of what he asked, ashamed of what he does. If you're ashamed of me, if you're not proud of him, if you don't value him, if you don't treasure him, this is what he says. That's the way that I'll view you when I come back. That's the way that I will view you. I will be ashamed of you. And you will spend eternity with people who consider me an embarrassment. There is a cost to pursuing a life of self-gratification and self-preservation. And here's the thing. Is he worth dying to it? Is Jesus worth dying to a life pursuing self-gratification and self-preservation? Is he worthy? And let me just join with the story and the testimony of Scripture and say he is more than worthy He is worth following, even to Jerusalem, even to the suffering, even to the loss, even to the pain. He is worth following all the way to his death. He's worth it. He's going to die in Jerusalem, and it will seem like everything is lost. And there will be times in following him when it will seem like everything is lost. All real hope is gone. That's what they were experiencing in Jerusalem. All real hope was gone. He was dead. But his death isn't bad news anymore. And he'd already told them why. His death was not bad news anymore, because his death is the source of our life. He loved us and gave himself up for us. He needed to die for you and I to actually live. He's worthy. He's he's worth it. Whatever it ultimately costs you, he's worth it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great saint, he said this. He said, the call of God and the grace of God is costly because it calls us to follow. It calls us to follow Jesus. We're going to have to go to Jerusalem. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Jesus. It's costly because it calls us to follow. There's a a path that we've got to go on. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. There's a path and there's a person. There's sorrow and suffering, but there's sweetness because it's Jesus. It's costly, he said, because it costs a man his life. You have to die to yourself. Die to this pursuit of self-preservation, but it's grace because it gives a man the only true life that there really is. And this is the reason the Apostle Paul, who had amassed a reputation like you and I could never achieve, accomplishments like you and I could never achieve. And he said, I count all of it, all of it as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And you know what? I count them all as rubbish in order that I might just gain Christ. He's worth it. Bonhoeffer went on and said that grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. To die to that yoke of self-gratification. Die to that life of self-gratification and have to take Jesus' yoke upon you. His desires, his will, it's costly, but it's grace because Jesus is the one who said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus will go on and look at his disciples and those who would follow him. And he'll say this, truly, truly, I say to you, now that's Jesus' way of Put an emphasis on something, saying you, if you're going to listen to anything, you've got to listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. In other words, Jesus is saying to those who would follow him, Those who would see him for who he is, those who would die to a life of self gratification and self preservation, Jesus would say, You can't give up more than I'm going to give you. Those things you think it's going to cost you, whatever it is that's keeping you from him right now, that's keeping you from following him, you can't give up more than he's going to repay you. You think it's so hard that the house, that that person, that situation, it seems so hard to give up. It's just a weed. It's just a weed. And Jesus is saying, You can't give up more than I am going to give you. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. You've got to be ready to give up everything that you hold dear right now. You're going to follow Him. You've got to be ready to give up everything that you hold dear right now. You've got to believe there's nothing you think that you'll lose there's nothing ultimately that you can lose because in the end everything you gain is him he is more than enough believing that believing what he says to be true is what's called faith and that's what he requires of those who would follow him you've got to believe him at his word is he Enough. Is he worth it? Let me pray for us this morning. God, I thank you for this extraordinary section of your word. Uh, this section of your word that it exposes exposes my priorities in a way that I would, never, I would never look at on my own. I ask, Lord, that you would do what you can only do by your Spirit, and you would enable each and every single one of us to see your Son, Jesus, as more precious, more satisfying, ultimately satisfying, and that you would enable us, by grace, through faith, to follow Him, to follow Him. Amen.